What's going on, people? Welcome to another episode of Stars Drive Stories. Our guest today is Vincent Scapinato. Mr. Scapinato is a former stockbroker and financial advisor, and currently the president of the nonprofit organization Kitchen on the Street. He was born and raised in Philadelphia and went to the University of Arkansas and graduated from Rutgers University. He went on to get his master's at Cal Lutheran. Mrs. Scapinato grew up in a family business. His parents were Italian immigrants and ran an Italian restaurant in New Jersey. He was a stockbroker in Arizona starting in 1998 and became a financial advisor until the year 2015. In 2006, he started the nonprofit Kitchen on the Street, which provides 2,000 kids a week with a so-called bag of hope, which is food for over the weekend or during the school week. Today's episode is all about business. In other words, Mr. Scarbinato is going to teach us how to run a non-profit organization, how to be ethical within business, and why is it so important to have young entrepreneurs in society. Furthermore, we're going to look at the big differences of entrepreneurship here in America compared to the mentality in Germany, and we can see that Germans can learn a lot from the American business mentality. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you guys enjoy. What's up, folks? Welcome to another episode of Star Story Stories. Today, we're going to have the amazing Mr. Scarpinot on the show. Welcome. Very good. Amazing. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so Glad you threw right in there. You're um, all about business, right? Your life and your purpose in life is business. Is I would right? say so. I, I uh, yeah, from a young from a young age, uh, was immersed into commerce at a young age. My family, uh, my my family came here from Italy. My grandparents opened a restaurant in their house, mm. so uh, I've been uh, involved in business. I would say for a better part of my life. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot of like a uh, big conceptions Germans have about business is that, especially in America, that Americans um, really want to be an entrepreneur. They want to open their own business. That's just really the way of life. Um, the people like handle business here. Um, is that true? Can you talk a little bit about the American spirit, especially when it comes to business or mm -hmm. entrepreneurship? As opposed to what they do in Europe or Germany? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I guess I would boil it down to, and, and again, so I have a little bit of a, a background with, with folks that are European because my family came mm. from Italy. So I, I, get, right. I get what that is. And um, I, would say, I would say I would I would chalk it up to two main factors of what the difference, the main differences are between Americans, Europeans, and Germans <coughs> specifically. And I would say that's, um, there's a success factor here. Uh, mm. The people are driven for success. Um, there's that success and achievement. And believe it or not, it's a, it's a core cultural value in the United States. I think once no matter where you come from, no matter what part of the world you come from, once you get here, you start to realize that this is a success-driven society, yeah. and you're either going to Absolutely. buy into it or not buy into it. So I would say that uh, that's one thing that, that, that takes place. The other one that I realized from my family and traveling in Europe is time. We, 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 we value time differently in the United States, especially in American business, than you do in, in, in European countries. Um, we look at our time as, as that it's, it's mainly for producing revenue. Mm. Um, it's all about time, time, is is, time is money and time is commerce. And <clears throat> I mean, just from the statistics alone, uh, Americans spend 30% less time doing leisurely activities or taking vacations 
or holiday, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, so I would say those two things. I would say that from a standpoint of success and achievement and then applying that to time, one of the things that happens here is, is that we're very concerned with uh, what that looks like f from a status standpoint. Yeah. So when you come to America, you can tell when someone's successful very easily by where they live, by what they drive, by their toys, how they dress, how they dress and all those different things. Where I don't think the Europeans are as much concerned uh -huh. about those types of things. So that's I, that's from my you know what I've seen from my observation. Right. All right. Um, then why would you think that it's perceived as more successful in the United States to open your own business or like to run your own business, whereas in Germany, success a lot of times is perceived as getting that good job and not creating it. Yeah, so you have to look at, you have to think about America and how it started. Uh, it, it, it's, we, we have a, a tendency from a psychological standpoint to be more immersed into that, that individualism, that rugged individualism, right? Where when you go to Europe, it's more collective. It's more social, socialistic. Yeah. Um, and, and, but here it's, it's not based on that. Here it's based on what that individual can accomplish on their own. So, and that's a, you know, and that's, really the cornerstone of what a successful individual is looking for. So when it comes down to why start your own business, it's really so you can be in charge and be your own boss, so you, you can claim that success, so you can own it. Um, whereas when you go there, and it might be, you know, listen, I got this great job, and I'm going to keep this job forever because it's going to afford me, True. you know, uh, yeah. a lifestyle. You know, we're not content in the United States. We're not content with you predicting what my lifestyle is going to be. I'll do that myself. And so when you get people that are, um, the people that are driven by success and, and, and also by commerce, mm -hmm. yeah, starting your own business is the best way to do that. It's the best way to set yourself free financially from anyone telling you, hey, here's your paycheck, mm -hmm. you know, have, you know, have a nice life as yeah. opposed to, I'll, I think I'll create my own paycheck, thank you, right? That's the way it works. Because at least from my experience, is rare that in Germany, but I guess in Europe altogether, people even have that drive to be self-employed or to start something on their own. Because in the eyes of the public, it's most often regarded as kind of crazy. Like most people that I would tell, them I'm going to start my own business, that I have an idea, that I'm going to pursue whatever I want to do, they would probably perceive me as crazy and like, yeah, that's really not the way to go. Like you should just. Keep going to school, getting a higher education. Yeah, maybe to clarify a little bit for our like American friends, like in, in Germany, it's not really common to open to open your own business or to be an entrepreneur. So um, the way we kind of do it is like go to school, get a good education, and then enter a, like a big company and like work your way up. And maybe when you're like 40, 50 and you have the financial background, maybe you saved up some money, then you start. But here in America, it's like all right, you get out of college, and the first thing you basically want to do is. Um, open your own business but one thing that interests me a lot is that um, you said that the American society is like driven by success where does that come from well, I think if you go back historically and look at how this country was founded mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of a breakaway uh, mentality um, so we you know the pioneers that came here the people that came here were looking for a different life I can only speak for my family yeah. you know my family is from a part of Italy where there was you know not northern Italy but southern Italy where there was a lot of poverty um, and and this was always seen as a better life this was always seen as a place where you could you know you could be anything you wanted and, and you could you could uh, 
you know, you could at that point in Not time. From rags to riches yeah, mentality. I mean, you could become yeah. financially solvent here, where mm -hmm. in those European countries, if you weren't born into it, or if it wasn't a family legacy, the chances of you becoming wealthy weren't going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, so the people that came here kind of set the standard, right? right? And then what happened is, is that, you know, through that process of commerce and capitalism, um, people are. We have risk takers here. We have people who are willing to go out on the skinny branches and take a mm. chance and lose it all and then try again. And I think that a lot of times, you know, the Europeans, you know, they're a little bit more, I wouldn't say complacent, but they're a little more calculating when it comes to if I do this, I'm right. going to lose money. Right. And in America, it's kind of like, hey, if you lose money, just give it a shot. Yeah. You know, you're, so, you're, you're so on the right track. You know so I mean? we say that that mentality, that whole attitude, that risk taking attitude has a lot to do with just the cultural upbringing. I, I think I think what happens is is that you know there's a there's a, a a certain atmosphere that you get into in the United States. Um, you know when you see a Starbucks and then you know 200 yards down the road you see another one, mm -hmm. and then you keep seeing these businesses pop up. I think that you have to understand that you know that's a, that's that's part of a, how our society was put together. It's it's commerce based. Um, You go to other places and there's you don't see as much, you know, as many franchises and you don't see as many, you know, you don't see a, a you know, a whole bunch of businesses next to each other in a, just a, a rural part of the, a rural part of the, you know, the country. You know, when you go, when you go into those cities in Europe, you know, you got a lot of business that's in the city part, but that actually right. gets farther and farther out. You don't see as much of that, whereas here you do. You know, you can go out to you know Texas and ride along a country road, and all of a sudden there's five or six fast food places, and there's you know there's commerce, there's businesses, and they're all you know they're all done by you know those businesses are all started by people that say you know I used to work in a hamburger place, now I'm going to franchise my own, mm -hmm. um, and that and that and that atmosphere um, is is inbred into the country of how we got here. I mean, I think it's just all about taking chances and capitalizing on the ability to generate revenue instead of, like I said, somebody handing you a paycheck, you make your own paycheck. And there's a lot of people that enjoy doing that here. Let's talk a little bit about risk. Um, so looking at the numbers, um, I think it's less than 30% of the businesses that open survive the first three years, right? Um, Coming from a very uh, like a, a business background, as you are coming from, would you recommend anyone opening a business? I mean, it obviously depends on the idea and all that stuff, but still, do you think like just looking at the fact how risky it is, would you say, all right, give it a try? Or yeah, I, I think if you go back to the numbers and you go and, you get, and again, you can get those those figures and facts from a lot of different places. Mm. But at the end of the day, I think that. Businesses do last a little longer than that here. I think the 10-year mark, you might see a 30% of failure rate. Um, business in the United States are well capitalized now because we have a, a tremendous uh, amount of venture capitalists that are out there. You know, we have a lot of people that have become financially solvent that are willing to angel fund and, and, and fund uh, uh, businesses. You don't see that as much in other countries. Yeah, right. Um, I think that's a big so, so there's, if you have a great idea, there's probably somebody out there that's willing to take a chance on you financially. But, you know, it's kind of like... I mean, which also is like kind of plays into that risky part. Even, oh, yeah. I mean, for an investor, it's also like a risky move Every to, in, uh, to risk. invest uh, yeah. into a small business owner or right. someone who only has an idea. Yeah. 
So but that it's, maybe, but yeah. it's the same situation. If you watch like an episode of Shark Tank, just think of that happening thousands and thousands of times all over the country where people are standing in front of someone pitching an idea mm. for a product or a service or whatever the case may be. It happens all the time. So theoretically speaking, if you have a tremendous idea, the, 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 the innovation is the value. But at that point in time, there's other people who come alongside and pony up the, pony up the money to say, I would definitely invest in your idea. No mm -hmm. matter if you sold one or you have zero dollars in sales, there's still somebody that may come alongside you and, and invest in the, into that idea. So that's what makes America a little bit more uh, of an advantage if you're going to go somewhere and start a business. That's why you see a lot of people come from other countries and start businesses here because there's people that are willing to invest in ideas, right? And not just a proven tra uh, a business with a track record, but just the idea alone. And that's that innovation mm -hmm. that you see that happens all the time. Just the way you're putting that, it seems to me what you're saying is it's easier to start a business in America than Absolutely. it is anywhere else. Would you agree Absolutely. with that? Absolutely. No doubt about it. What are the key factors for that? What would you say? What are, what would be your top three key factors? Why it is the easiest to start? A well, you have in people America? with with extraordinary amounts of money, exactly, yeah. and you have people with extraordinary ideas. That's why a lot of inventions mm -hmm. uh, and innovation comes out of the United States, whether it's R and D or or in, in medical technology. They're they're coming out of the United States. Most of the ideas right now are coming from the United States because mm -hmm. people are willing to invest in that. Whereas maybe in, in Europe, they're a little bit more hesitant. I don't know you. Why would I? Why would I hand you, you know, a, a million dollars for an idea that you had, right? Whereas in the United States, it's like, I don't care if I know you. I love your idea. I love your passion. Yeah. I think. I think what you've come up with may be, you know, viable in our society. I'm willing to put some. I'm willing to put some money out there and make that happen. And that, you know, that comes in a lot of different ways. That's angel funding, venture capitalists, even hedge funds, which, you know, we're pretty good at here in this country. So. That's, I think that's the main difference. It really is. What We're is, risk takers. What is a thing, let's say there's a 21-year-old guy or woman, whatever, um, tries to open his or her business. What is one recommendation you would give to her or him? Open a business? Yeah. Underst like understand maybe. how to pitch it. Understand, right. have a story. Mm -hmm. Have a story that, that, that people can listen to and they can and gives them the opportunity to buy in. Um, the biggest thing that I see a problem with people. What's more important, the numbers or the story behind that whole thing? Oh, definitely the story. The story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, numbers. Numbers will come into play somewhere down the line. Sure. But you have to you have to hook the person to make them interested. Hmm. And if the story is and, and the and the pitch on the business is formidable, then you can go to the next step, and that is what, what's the, what's it look like to finance it? Yeah. Because. You know, you're going to appeal to two sides of someone. You're going to pique their interest, and then you're going to try and make that interest Im impact their, their financial ability to come alongside. And so the people that I see, and sometimes I'll, I'll peep, have people that come alongside and want to be mentored to go into business, first thing I want to hear is their story. I want to hear their mm -hmm. pitch. Tell me, tell me, first of all, tell me why you're passionate about it. Right. Tell me where the idea came from. Tell me what you think the solution is, that you're, the, the challenge that's out there that you're going to you know, bring a solution to. And once you get all that together, we can find you money. If it's a good idea, that's all it comes down to. But it's a story and how you tell that story. And if you have to practice it a million times, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about elevator pitch. Uh, when, when, you're, when you're coming up with an idea, that's, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the most important thing you could possibly have is an elevator, a, a solid pitch. All right, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Scarpinato. About, we, we said that you're from a business background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What did you do in life? 
So, yeah, so I grew up in an Italian family restaurant. Um, my, my grandparents opened the restaurant in their home when they came to this country. So, um, and, and our par my family were, were in farming in Italy. Um, so my grandfather came here uh, first. He was the first one to come in the 20s, 1920s, maybe 26, 27. During the Great Depression? Just before that, just before the yeah, he, he was here right here before the depression. And actually, he was a, a you know he came here as a sixteen year old kid, and you know was was basically uh, a cement finisher when he first came here uh, because they were building a lot yeah. of roads and bridges yeah. and things like that. But um, yeah, so they came here and and uh, he got married and they opened a restaurant uh, on my that's my mother's side and my father's side same thing in farming and they opened the restaurant as well. So both my grandparents were in the restaurant business. Hmm. Um, my parents eventually ended up. Uh, in the restaurant business as well, and, and as well did I. So I owned uh, I owned about three or four restaurants back east uh, in Philadelphia. Um, decided that I wanted to change careers at, at one point in time. Somebody walked in one day and made me an offer to sell the business, and I knew that it was they were paying more for it than probably what I would ever get for it any other time. So uh, sold the business, took took some time off, came to Arizona. Um, checked it out, liked it, liked the climate, liked everything about it, and I came down here. Yeah. But uh, I didn't want to be in the restaurant business anymore. I was, I was right. you know, sick and tired of that. And uh, <clears throat> so I, um, I went and took my uh, securities licenses and became uh, a financial advisor, financial planner, and um, and that's basically what I did for the last, I guess, 20, 25 years. I started when I was in my forties and then retired, you know, when I was fifty-five from USAA. Uh, which is like a broker business, right? It's an insurance company for the military. Oh. Insurance, investments, and banking for the military. Okay. So I did that for quite a few years. Um, and, and, you know, and I learned, I, you know, I was always, I was always good at, at, at sales. I always enjoyed sales. Mm -hmm. So being in, in that financial services business, there was a little bit of sales and a little bit of advice. So it was a, it was a, you know, it was a nice career. I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing what I was doing uh, in that capacity. You did work as a broker though, right? Right, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because like I think the wide perception of that is is being the ultimate gambler, yeah. sort of. Sure. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that um, so there's there are a couple of different ways where you can be in that business. Um, I worked in it on the commission side, so I didn't get paid unless I made a sale uh, or gave advice where somebody purchased a stock, a bond, and I did my own. I, I my my. Uh, my part of that industry that I really excelled in was I did bond portfolios. I built my own bond portfolios. So I didn't use mutual funds uh, or, 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 or different types of uh, mutual funds that were just buying bonds. I built my own bond portfolios. And the reason I did that was because I could find and do the research and find individual bonds that met people's specific needs. But one of the things that I was, I was very conservative. So I would always, I would always guarantee a client, hey, I, can, I, I want to try and keep you in the 6 to 8% range in terms of returns. Now, mm -hmm. you got to remember at the time, you know, the Merrill Lynch's of the world were getting people 30 and 40% returns, but I always felt like slow and steady was going to win the race. Yeah. I always felt like right. uh, a good conservative return. I had, senior, I had a senior clientele, so they were older folks, and that, um, you know, they, they really, they, you know, they enjoyed a good conservative rate of return um, without a lot of risk. So right. that's how I did well, you know, in that particular industry. And, you know, my theory always was is that uh, someone that works for commission only, uh, you know, when they, make the, when they make the recommendation, they get paid. 
but if the recommendation doesn't do as well as, as you expected, uh, they don't lose any money. So that's why I always tried to be fee-based so that when they didn't do as well, I didn't do as well. I got paid a percentage on what, whatever their portfolio value was as opposed to um, you know, them, them doing, not doing well and me really doing well. So I would say to anybody out there that's ever going to do any kind of uh, uh, investing, Make sure you understand how the person you're mm. buying from is getting paid. You know, if they're fee-based, that works a little bit better on your behalf. But if they're commission-based, chances are, you know, they're going to do well all the time, and you may and you may not. I think a lot of people are not going to be familiar with that term. Can you explain a little bit what a portfolio is? Yeah. So what happens is this: uh, you know, you have <coughs> you have funds, whether it's retirement funds, savings, or whatever the case may be. Um, you're going to hand that off to someone who's a licensed professional in most cases, or, you know, hopefully you, you learn how to do this yourself, to invest yourself. But if you hand it off to a licensed professional, they're going to build you a, a, a portfolio, which is a bunch of different investments right. that are not going to rise and fall all at the same time. So right. when one portion of your portfolio may not be doing as great, the other portion is going to hold it up and, and get you the return that you need. But, uh, you know, so that's the, that diversification, that diversity within a a bunch of investments, you know, that's going to help you just kind of grow slow and steady so that when you do get ready to retire, that money's there for you, right? right? Um, and that's basically what portfolio management is. That's basically what financial advice is, you know, taking care of all the different issues that may go wrong in your life. Life insurance in case someone dies prematurely. Disability insurance in case someone gets disabled and can't work. Um, you know, long-term care insurance in case you ever end up in an old folks home. Uh, so all those different, you know, life events that can happen to a person, you want to make sure that you're you're touching base and, and, and taking care of all those issues. And then finally, the last one is best case scenario, you live too long, right? Yeah. Then you have that money out there that you need when you retire, so that you do the things that you want to do in your life. So when people like me with not a lot of like knowledge about that broker life think of brokers, what comes to mind is obviously the gambling. What yeah. comes to mind is the kind of like that dirty business a little bit, yeah. that wolf of, wolf of Wall Street lifestyle. How accurate is that? Is it is it very difficult to be ethnical as a broker, for example? No, I, I think there was a period of time, um, and, it was, and it was the period of time right when uh, technology got introduced to mm -hmm. um, the, the, the world of, of investing. Um, You know, today you can go on, you know, a, a, a software platform, TD Ameritrade, for instance, and you can trade and buy stocks, and you can short stocks, and you can you can do all kinds of different things that only you could do as a broker before, right? right. Um, so there was a lot of room for um, manipulation, yeah, uh, you know, of, of people's stuff. of people's portfolios, and and but now I think we have more regulation in this country. I think we have more oversight and compliance in this country, so it doesn't happen as much. But at the end of the day, you still have to be vigilant because the, when you hand your money to someone, you have to be very confident that they're going to do the right thing with it. So yeah, you always want to make sure that they're ethical. Uh, you want to make sure that they have a great track record. And uh, you always want to make sure that you feel comfortable handing them your dollars and knowing they're going to do the right thing with them. But there's always a chance for, for any kind of you know, fraud or, or, or malfeasance that may happen you know, when you hand, because you know, let's face it, wherever you see money, you're going to see, you're going to see uh, crime, right? right? That's why people rob banks. So that's where the money is. Can you think of any like story? 
story about maybe like an yeah I I, I have a, I have a yeah yeah example. I have a great one. Um, so when I was a I was a financial advisor in an area here in Arizona that's highly populated with senior citizens, and I had a lady that that came into my office one day and she was probably in her I'm going to say she was in her 80s and. Um, she had quite a bit of money. She probably had, you know, maybe a little over a million dollars invested. And one day she came to me and she was going to uh, um, take a bunch of her capital out of this out of this account. And I, I had asked her why, and she said that uh, her husband, who had passed away maybe two months before I met her, before I had met with her. Um, was working with someone on an investment situation and I had met with her husband and I knew her husband and he had never explained to me that this was you know he was going to invest some other area and what and what I after doing some research and I said okay can you just have the person come into the office let's meet here because this is where all your money is um, let's meet and let's discuss it and the, the the person that she was talking about wouldn't come in and, and meet with me. So I was kind of a little skeptical mm. at that point in time. Yeah. So what I found out after doing some research was what he did was when, and it was usually elderly women, and he would watch the obituaries. And when, let's say for instance, when this woman's husband passed away, and his name was Tom, he would watch the obituaries and find out when he died. And then he'd wait a couple weeks, and then he would show up at the house, and he was, a, he was probably in his 70s, you know, full head of gray hair, nice suit on. I mean, looked very professional. Right. Drove a Cadillac Escalade. I mean, the guy looked the part. And he would go up to the door, and he would knock on the door. And when the woman answered the door, he would say, hi, is Tom here? And she would say, no, I'm very sorry, but Tom passed away a, mm. a few, you know, a month or so ago. And he would say, oh, I can't believe it. I'm so sorry. My condolences. We were working on a deal together for some investments, and he really wanted to take care of you. He knew that you were, you know, uh, as his wife, he wanted to make sure that you were taken care of financially. And I have all the paperwork here. It's just a matter of us, you know, getting, you know, getting it done. And what wow. we found out was that he wow. had done this multiple times to elderly women, uh, and took advantage of them with some really shady investments. And he was making a boatload of commission, well, a lot of commission. Yeah, so he was taking care. He was basically taking advantage of death in the family, and using because in that generation, like the men controlled the dollars, right? right? So when you get somebody in their 80s, normally the man of the house was the one controlling the finances, Correct. and the women really didn't know much. So he had them. He had them at a disadvantage exactly. immediately. So here they are grieving. They have lots of money, and they trusted this guy. So he, when I tell you, he made a lot of money doing it. But he probably depressed too. I mean. Well, just died, yeah, right. Like. But he got caught, and uh, he got caught because you know he's he, you know he, he at one point in time he was doing like two or three a year, mm. and then he started doing eight or nine a year. And, you know, so many get greedy. What happens, right? You <laughs> I would assume that he's not the only one out there doing that. Oh, it's a great idea, right? Yeah. If, if you have that, if you have that kind of, I wouldn't say uh, a great idea, but like, but I'm saying for a criminal, I mean, let's face <laughs> it, because you know it's really not a crime. You think about it, it's an ethical crime, yeah. but it's mm -hmm. not, I mean, if he, she gave him money, he Ooh. put her in investment, Ooh. he got paid a commission, so he was putting him in, basically in annuities, where he was getting a 10% or 12% commission. So when he would put $500,000 into an annuity, he would get a $50,000 commission. And he would do that four or five times a year in the beginning and make, you know, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year. Well, when he got greedy, you know, he was trying to make a million a year, do it 10 times, that's when he got caught, so...
That's, uh, that's what happens. You have to be vigilant out there. But I would say this, if you have a client and you're a financial advisor, you have to make sure that you're paying attention to not only what they're doing with their dollars, but you know who, who are they doing it with. You really gotta pay attention to that. For sure. Yeah. So after your career as a stockbroker and financial mm -hmm. advisor, um, you opened the nonprofit business, yep. right? It's called Kitchen on the Street. Yeah, uh, during, during my time <clears throat> working as a financial advisor, um, my wife and I and our kid were looking for volunteer opportunities uh, mm -hmm. in the area, and we just couldn't find anything that we really thought was like, you know, uh, speaking to us and, and, we, and we were enjoying. And um, we had a person that, uh, that came to our house one night for dinner. Uh, he was a principal of a school uh, over here on the west side of Phoenix. And my wife just innocently asked him, you know, how's your school year going? And he was a big guy, like a football player looking kind of uh, individual. Um, and he just put his head down and pushed the plate away and tears were, were coming down his face. And uh, after he composed himself, he told us a story about a young girl that he was watching in the cafeteria. And as children were leaving, she was going back in. And um, he was keeping an eye on her because he didn't know what she was up to. And when he did watch her, he saw her go to a trash can and pull some food out. And he said he could see pizza wow. that had someone else's bite marks in it and that she would wrap it in napkins and put it in her pockets. So when he stopped her and said, you know, what's going on? She thought she was in trouble for taking food out of the trash, which obviously, you know, it's a tragedy in its own right. But she told him that, you know, they were, they were uh, refugees here from the Sudan, uh, from Sudan, and that she had a younger brother and sister at home, and she was responsible for um, making sure that they ate. Um, the parents, the family, <clears throat> they had a mother, not a father, but uh, the family was in, in financial disarray. So that night we decided that, um, did some research and found out, and this was in 2005 or 2000, 2006, that there was a hunger problem for kids in this in this city, uh, in Phoenix. Um, and then we decided that evening to start a nonprofit organization, a, a Christian organization, faith-based organization called Kitchen on the Street. Right. And um, we started then. Um, and as we started, we started to realize that more and more schools were approaching us and saying, we have children that are in the same situation. Um, and you know, if you're, you've been here for a while, you can tell that we have a decent amount of, you know, immigrant influx and refugee influx. Right. So, and yeah, a lot of times they come here with nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. So we started then and um, at, at that evening, and now we feed uh, 2,000 children every weekend with what we call Bag of Hope, which is, you know, a weekend provision uh, for them, some main meals, some snacks, some different things that they can have so that they can show up on school on Monday and be ready to learn. So we knew that was the issue. Um, since we've started, uh, we've done the metrics and we keep track of um, what's going on with the schools. Um, we know that um, reading scores have increased by 12%, math scores oh, by 26%. Attendance is better, behavior is better, because you know that you know, if you show up to school more, you're gonna do better. If you have, if you have food in you, you know, you know, you're, you're more likely to go to school. Yeah, well, that, right. and, you know, and, and, and plus, you, know, you don't have as many behavior issues. And a lot of times when we see people that are in poverty, a lot of times their biggest issues are in attendance and behavior, believe it or not. So that's one of the things that it's, uh, that it's alleviating at this point in time. I'm really impressed by that project, to be honest. I think you're having a huge impact and, and really giving back to the community. Like, you're one of the few charities maybe that's really actually helping people. I know a lot of charities really gather a lot of money without really having a big impact, but you really kind of grab the problem by the root yeah. and, and start really <clears throat> in, your, in your community. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I try and do here when I teach here is I, I try and teach 
with with the purpose of have a social cause. You know, and, and, and you know, taking my class, you know that one of the things that I cared greatly about, even from an entrepreneurial standpoint, is, you know, if you make a lot of money, then that's great. But what are you going to do with it at that right. point in time? Is it for you to enjoy, or can you help some other folks out along the way? And, and I was fortunate. I did well financially, so I was able to leave my job at 55 uh, and, and do this. Um, and, and not tax, like you just said, not tax the, the organization with the need for me to have a big paycheck, because I don't get a paycheck mm -hmm. from that. But um, I think that it's important that, you know, even as students, you know, as you move on in your careers, you know, or anybody that's listening right now, is that you should have a social cause. You should have something that you care about that impacts you deeply. And for me, it was that story here and the story of that kid. It was like, hey, I want to do something about it. When that. did you figure that out, that social cause thing? Like later in your life or was that, let's say, like you entered business, you already had that mentality? Or was there like a certain event, where, like maybe besides that, um, the, the kid who um, who got the food out of the trash can, was there always like that thing, yeah, I want to have a social impact, or was that the key moment when you said, all right, you know, I, let's I, change something? I, I grew up you know, in, a, in a lower middle class family. My, my objective my whole life was to, to make as much money as I possibly could. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I was running the restaurants and I was in the restaurant business, um, my, my main concern was generating revenue. And, and, and maybe having the toys that went with that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think at some point in time in your life, you start to realize it's not fulfilling anymore. And I, for me, it definitely got to that point. But, but the fact is, is that I think, I, I, you know, my wife was always the one that had a heart for the poor more so. Mm. Um, I, I learned more and more about that as I, as I got older. Um, and, and then at one point in time, I, I, I realized it was kind of the, uh, you know, there's that calling that you get when you want to go out and serve. Right. And then there's the call within the call that says, no, now it's time to do it for right. real. And when I realized that, I was ready to let everything else go. And, and you get to a certain point in your life where then all of a sudden things don't matter. Stuff doesn't matter anymore. And you realize that people are more important. And... And then, you know, the provision comes. God's provision comes from that. And I, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, you know, you can be in, you can be in ministry, you can be in nonprofit, you can be in social services, and you get blessed. I mean, things come your way, and but you all of a sudden you're a conduit. You're passing it. You're not keeping it, right? Because I think a lot of times we started at this conversation talking about, you know, what does what does America look like from a from a, a standpoint of why is why is being successful so important here? But I think all of a sudden you get to a point where you look at it and go, you know, that probably wasn't the most important thing. And everybody finds it at a different purpose, mm. a point in time. That's why I try, when I teach class here, I try and make sure that you guys understand that at your, where you're at now, why is this important? And your generation's phenomenal because you do care about, uh, you, you care about social causes, you care about the environment, mm. you care about, you know, the community and you care about all these things, whereas I think the older generations, that's not as important to them, but I think once you get to the point where you start to see what that feels like and looks like, you know, it's important. And I'm, I'm surrounded by a lot of young people, to 20-somethings and younger, that just have a, a passion to help people that are in poverty or help mm. people that are in, a, in, a, in social injustices that are out there, um, no matter what they are. And then the environment and, the, you know, and things like that that are really important that, you know, a lot of times your generation is more, you know, in touch with than maybe, you know, some of the other, you know, the other generational 
uh, you know, the generations above you, I'll say it that way. But um, for me, it was that, you know, so when I talked to you a minute ago about when someone's going to start a business, what's the most important thing that they have? And I said it was their story. And that person's story that night, you know, mm. not just from a business standpoint, but if you want to change the world and make a difference, the story is what makes that happen. Right. You know, that leaves me with my number one question about really all nonprofit organizations. So, how, do, at the end of the day, you still have to sustain living mm -hmm. because, like, you need to have a roof over your head. You need to have food on the table. How do you do that with nonprofits? You just said you don't get a check from your nonprofit. Is that right? Right. So, is a nonprofit organization something that's only left for people who have made money in the past, who have made enough money in the past so that they can afford not to get a check from it? So so think about a nonprofit, right? A nonprofit is a business entity, right? Uh, if we look at nonprofits based upon what the IRS says a nonprofit is, the only difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit is that in that nonprofit business, when you make profit, you can't hand it to shareholders. That's the only difference, hmm. right? Yeah. Otherwise, I can have a nonprofit organization and I can have 20 million in the bank, right? Yeah. I just can't hand it to shareholders. And if I'm a for-profit business, I can pass that money out or take it personally, right? So you'll see nonprofits that have CEOs that make half a million dollars, million dollars, five million dollars a year. So that's different than what I do. Um, but, the, but to answer your question, I think that, and it comes back to the, the, all this whole conversation is, every nonprofit should have a revenue source. It shouldn't just be donation. You sh a nonprofit should have a revenue source. It should have some business attached to it. That's what right? I'm thinking. Think of yeah. think of a, from a model like Goodwill. People donate clothing, they sell it, right? right. But in the meantime, they have a, tra a employee training program because most of the people that are working at Goodwill are learning how to do a job, right? Mm. Whether they came out of addiction or they're special, they have a special you know need yeah. situation, but they're learning how to do a job. So Goodwill takes someone's clothes that you don't want anymore, they sell them, and, and their employees are all people that need to learn how to do a, do a job, right? So <clears throat> that's a purpose, and but they have a revenue source. Um, Think of uh, you know think of any other organization that's a nonprofit that can can you know can generate revenue, and for us so we ran a, you know I was in the food business my whole life so we opened up a cafe in Scottsdale and we sold food for a suggested donation and generated you know revenue doing that right so you generate let's say we generated any you know every year three or four hundred thousand dollars of donated food that we sold to people and. The, the, and we used again. We used our our uh, employee uh, situation for people that were in need of a job. Either they were incarcerated, most people don't hire them, or they were coming out of recovery, most people don't hire them. So that was the part of the the, the, the nonprofit side that made it made sense. But I think the biggest mistake that a lot of people make when they go and start a nonprofit is they don't know where their dollars are going to come from. Well, you have to have a. Is, a that, is that is that the biggest hardship of when you run a non-profit, non just finding investors? And if so, how do you approach investors? Well, you, you know, it's just like being a stockbroker or a financial advisor. You're prospecting all the time. Everywhere you go, you're prospecting. Everywhere you go, you're, you're asking for business or you're asking for donations. That's why your story matters so much. When I tell you the story about the little girl going into the mm. trash and eating food from the trash, you know, That's not made up. That's a true story, right. but it should, at that point in time, invoke some emotion in you going, 
man, I can't imagine if that was my little sister or my daughter, right. you know, having to do that, right? Um, so your story matters. But at the same time, if you're a nonprofit organization, you need to have some type of business acumen, understanding, so that you can generate revenue. Now, if you're really good at going out and asking for donations, you know, that's awesome. But it also matters what your cause is and how you're tied to it. Um, you know, I just told you a little while ago that there's going to be a $20 million pet rescue that's going in in downtown Phoenix. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, our, our, our allegiances or our alliances are, are not in the right place. Right. right? We, we, have, we have kids that are suffering with not getting enough meals, but we're going to put a $20 million, you know, pet rescue facility in, which... You know, may or may not make sense to me. It doesn't, but some yeah. other people might. But there's other causes. There's cancer. There's heart disease. There's right. all these different illnesses that also need, you know, people to pay attention to them. But, you know, again, sometimes it's better for people, instead of starting a nonprofit, to go volunteer work for one before they start their own. Because you could be duplicating someone else's, you know, someone else's efforts very easily. You know, so now you have, you wanted to be, you know, your own nonprofit, so you go and do the same thing that, you know, the United Way's doing well. They're going to do it a little bit better than you are, and they're capitalized a little better. You may be better off going and pouring your efforts into what they're doing as opposed to starting your own. For us at the time, there was no other organization that was coming alongside kids that were in food insecure conditions in Phoenix at the moment. There were food banks, but there wasn't anybody going into the schools and saying, "This kid's coming to school on Monday morning. He right. hasn't eaten all weekend, or he hasn't eaten the proper nutrition all weekend." And that's what we're focused on: nutrition and academic excellence. Not just throwing food at people, not ramen, mm. not, you know, food that's, that's not healthy. We put everything that we put into that bag is a healthy meal so that those kids are prepared. Just like an athlete, you, know, you, you put the proper nutrition in your body so you can excel in your exactly. sport. It's the same thing for these kids. You know what I mean? So. So is that the main difference between your organization and uh, food banks? Like, uh, we have this day of outreach here every year, and I've worked at a food bank here before. So... So yeah, I guess my question is, what really is the main difference between you guys and the, it's it's the nutritional aspect? So the thing that we focus on all the time is something that I teach all the time, and that's blue ocean strategy. You know, so here's the, here's the main thing you have to remember, right? So if there's a food bank and they're bring, giving food to an individual, we're not in competition. They're helping someone. Right, we're helping say. someone, right? Yeah. But the question is, and there's a book by Dr. Brian Finker. It's called When Helping Hurts, right? And you can basically try to assist someone and hurt them instead of help them in a lot of ways, okay? Uh, one of the main examples that they use in the book is um, Tom's shoes. You buy a pair, Tom gives somebody a pair, right? But we know that from doing the research that when Tom's shoes was giving shoes to people that they, you know, that in countries that maybe they couldn't afford shoes, mm -hmm. they were actually also putting people that made shoes and, and, and harvested the materials for shoes out of business. So the minute that you gave him a pair, you hurt the person that was actually had, had had a business that was actually in the business of making shoes, right? So we have to be careful when we give something. Um, is it is it the right give? And in the United States and in America, we're cause and effect country, right? Homeless house, hungry food, you know. Uh, and and sometimes that's not the not not the best thing to do. Sometimes it's better to let people regain their dignity and their self esteem and help them. So maybe homeless hungry job instead of house and food, right? Mm -hmm. And you go buy your own food and you, and you, and you pay for your own house. Yeah. But we, we sometimes we, we don't get that right. Um, so it matters how, the, how the, 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 uh, the, the, the offer is brought to you. If you see enough, if you see the need in a certain way, like a pity plea, 
and, 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 and it affects your heart, you're going to give to it, even though it may not be the right thing to give to. So when you go to food banks in this, in this area, um, are we giving the best food for that particular need? Our theory is no. Our theory, from our metrics and our studies and our research to show that most people in poverty don't eat well. Mm-hmm. So they have health issues above and beyond, yeah. you know, what people that, like, right. you, may, yeah. you, know, you guys are in good shape, you know. It's, it's cheaper to eat unhealthy a lot of times. Absolutely. Right. Sure problem. But, you know, but the thing is, is that we've created that, right? Yeah. So that even then when we come alongside them with food that, that they can't, maybe can't afford to buy, we don't give them what they really need, which is good, healthy food. We're not in touch with what they may think is a meal so like think perfect example in the united states thanksgiving is a big holiday right right is it a big deal in germany no no, no. <laughs> does they think it's a big deal in mexico no not they don't know who the pilgrims were they don't make they don't make they really know how to cook a turkey they don't want cranberry sauce and stuffing really doesn't matter to them either so for us our purpose is we don't do anything at thanksgiving well, you have a lot of food banks here that's a major thing around that holiday. It's like we're collecting turkeys. We're collecting, you know, this. Well, the people that we serve, the, the, the people that are impoverished from Africa and from, you know, Latin America and, you know, listen, rice and beans yeah. is what they want and need. And they understand that. They don't want a turkey. Yeah, they don't want cranberry that. sauce. Uh-huh. They don't right. know who the pilgrims in Plymouth Rock were. Right. You know what I mean? So the thing is, is that uh, sometimes we don't realize and we don't pay enough attention to what the need is. All we know is we handed out 10 million turkeys at Thanksgiving. No big deal. You know, that really didn't have any impact. Whereas a, if you, for the same amount of money, you can buy the person a 50-pound bag of rice and a 50-pound bag of beans. That they, can, they can use that for six months, mm-hmm. right? And they understand that better. And guess what? Rice and beans, when they come together, that's a complete protein. Yeah. Right? It's a healthy meal. You better believe it is. You better believe it is. You know, so that's the thing that we do wrong. Charity in this country is very interesting if you study it. We don't really pay attention to what the the causes are, and we don't pay attention to what the needs look like. We just just kind of basically want to say, here's what we did. And, and walk away and, and celebrate that we just helped a poor person. When that's not the way it should it should be at all. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've only heard about that in the in the much bigger frame where would the United States overproduce in, in all things wheat and, and corn, they they ship it over to Africa yeah, and by doing that. that they actually ruin the local businesses or or whatever what about left their over from the chicken. Where, where's, but think about this: we, the United States, forty percent of all the food we grow and produce goes in the landfill, 40%. That doesn't happen in, in, in many countries, yeah. right? So that's the country that we live in, right? But that we're, you know, so theoretically speaking, food rescue is just as much of a, of a need in this country as, as anything else when it comes to what should we be doing for, you know, the, 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 the people that are impoverished in this country. You know, we should be more about food rescue than we should be yeah. about, you know, the other things that we do, no doubt about it. So you seem like a pretty relaxed guy. Um, I wouldn't say that, but... But still passionate, obviously. You with espresso in me. I wouldn't say so either, to be honest. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like he's... But, like, what's the thing that drives well, you crazy that. about your business? What's the one thing that keeps you, night, keeps you up at night where you say, come on? Uh, I, the thing about the nonprofit side... Yeah. Um, I would say for me, um, the, the thing that, you know, we, so we have to collaborate with a lot of other people. Right. Um, and I see a lot of people whose heart isn't in it for the right reason. 
I see a lot of people that treat this nonprofit world uh, like it's the corporate world. You know, so they expect certain things. They expect certain perks. They expect certain salaries. Um, and they can, and, and they're in nine to five. So at five o'clock, or f let's say 501, if there's a person that's in need, I see a lot of people going, you know, we're closed. Hmm. And for us, yeah. we don't close. I mean, I, right. you know, I deliver emergency food boxes on a Saturday night at two o'clock in the morning to a family that just got thrown out of their apartment and they're in, staying in some, you know, some motel somewhere. Um, you ha if you're going to serve the poor, you have to walk alongside the poor. And if you're going to walk alongside the poor, plan on doing it. There's no time on it. Um, you know, we, we give out our phone number, and, and you know, it's almost like an emergency hotline. Mm. And people can call and say, "Hey, here's what's going on right now." And even for like the local police departments, they have our number. They know that they can't call a food bank. They know they can't call anybody else but us. And we'll say, "Hey, you know what? We'll th we'll throw a box of food together." We'll be over there in an hour. Right? There's a, there's a lot of people that say um, poor people are just lazy people. I heard that actually a lot. Yeah. Um, oh, how do you respond to that? Like, does that make you angry, some, aggressive? Some, some like, are. Um, we've created, you know, this country has created somewhat of an entitlement kind of a program with some of the programs that we have. Um, you know, when you look at you know the, the housing allowances and the food stamps and the different things that can happen, sometimes it makes more sense to stay home than it does to go out and work, right? So we have to teach people what that looks like to give them their self-esteem and their dignity back right. to say, you know, you need to get on your own two feet. Right now at Kitchen on the Street, what we're doing is, is that, you know, we're bringing back the family meal. So in our bag of hope that we put together for these kids, we also put a note in there for the families to say, you need to start having a family meal. And we put that food in there for them to do that. But we also put the, the information and the resources in so that they understand why. Because kids that sit at the table with their parents, their vocabulary is better. Right. Their behavior is better. They get in trouble less. They get addicted to drugs and alcohol less. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different things. And if you grew up sitting at a family table with your family, you realize that that's important. Well, a lot of times in people in poverty, that's not the case. So we have to make sure that we understand how to give them the, res the resources and the understanding behind it so that they start to take care of their own children. That's how you get rid of poverty. Yeah. And like I said to you in the beginning, you have to have a, it if you're going to go out there and pitch, like you. you have to have a solution. Otherwise, yeah. we'll be feeding people for the rest of our, until the, the, the world ends, right? right? But how do we come up with a solution to make that happen? And like, anytime you see poverty, you know, there is a solution. There's a solution to it. We just have to be ready to, to provide this solution and make sure it's a viable solution. And you can, you know, you can figure that out in, in, in a lot of different ways on a lot of different things. We're doing it right now. We're cleaning the ocean, right? There's there's a there's a trash pile between California and Texas, uh, between California and Hawaii that's twice the size of Texas. Yeah. Well, they're cleaning it up right now, and it can be done. You know, mm -hmm. we have to make sure that anytime we approach one of these challenges, that we we know that it can be solved. Just the same way that we solved. You know, uh, you know, diseases, polio, HIV, right, you know, right. there's solutions and we have to just keep constantly looking for them. That's what it comes down to. And so that in that respect, you're working 24 seven. You're 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 constantly you're, you're, if you if you love what you're doing, you know, anytime when I wake up, the first thing when I wake up in the morning, I think about hungry children and how am, am I going to provide a solution for them? And every time I have a chance, an idle chance, whether it's sitting here with you or wherever it is putting things on paper to figure out will this work mm -hmm. is this a solution right. and how can it be funded that's what it right. comes down to um, pretty much
This is not non-profit related anymore, but one thing I'm really interested in is what's your opinion on apps like Robinhood, if you've heard about it? Apps that let you that let you do micro investing. Because I think a lot of young people are especially interested in that because some of them even let you connect your credit or debit card to it and they just invest whatever you need to round up to the nearest dollar on any purchase that you make. Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think I think there's a challenge to uh, impacting people, younger folks, um, with with coming alongside uh, you know social causes and, and nonprofit organizations because of the money factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, that, and that's why I tell my classes all the time is that when you go out and look for that job, make sure that when they interview you, you ask them a question. What are you doing in the community? You know, what does your footprint look like in the community right. or, or, or for the environment? Make sure you ask that question. And I think that, you know, trying to appeal to the younger folks is a matter of appealing to what, what's their hot button. Is it the environment? Is it social injustice? Is it, is it poverty? What, what's their hot button? And sometimes, you know, you got to remember that time is more valuable than money. You know, we can always make more money. We can always create more money, but time we can't. We have a certain amount of that. So we, I appreciate people's time more than I appreciate their their, their money. Um, I appreciate their passion with their time more than I appreciate their money. That comes from a volunteer perspective. So the first thing we ask for before we ever ask for money is for them to come alongside and volunteer. See it. Look at it. See what the issue is because your generation has some phenomenal ideas. And that's why what we do is we bring in young people for their ideas, for their innovation. How do you think we can solve this problem? Um, not just come in and volunteer and feel good and go home and, and brag about you know what you did you did this weekend, right? Because that's what a lot of people do. Right. But the thing is, is that I think that through technology and through innovation and apps like that, yeah, obviously they're going to give you a, a better chance to get involved financially. But always be skeptical of an of an organization that asks you for your money before they ask you for your time. The first thing you should want to give them is your time, not your money. And then you know you're working with an organization that matters. And check them out. What does the CEO make? How much is their payroll? Where is their dollars going? Make sure, Just the same way we talked in the beginning about investments, and if you were going to hand me right now $100,000, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to know where I'm going to invest it. True. And if I told you, hey, listen, <laughs> I I'm, want going to, I'm going to invest it. I'm going to take it to Vegas, and I'm going to put it on the roulette wheel. That's an investment, right? I could, I could, yeah, I could double your money. And I'll take the chance, to be honest. I could double wow. your money. Do you have, have 100000 right now? I could, double, I could double your money, or I could lose it all, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that when you invest, you want to make sure you understand what your investing is. The same thing is when you give a donation to an organization, a nonprofit organization. Where is my money going? How much does the CEO make? Do they, you know? And if mm. if, if you're here's the thing, if you want to run a nonprofit and be a CEO of a nonprofit, you should have made enough money in your career that you can walk in there and go, I don't need a paycheck. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to serve and I'm here to give back. That's what that's what you should look for in a nonprofit organization. That was really my initial question about nonprofit organizations, though. So, so, so now that you're saying that that you should really have enough money that you can, that you don't need the paychecks, like. So it, it, after all, you can start. It makes you more money. authentic, I think. Like well, if you don't pay well yourself. Well, it does. But what? But what if someone just like at a young age has that same so cause st- and that passion to help people? So there's a step down from that, right? So there's something called a living wage. Yeah. You know, if I said to you, "Hey, come come alongside, run this nonprofit with me. I'm going to pay you thirty-five thousand dollars a year. Can you live on that?" Right. Probably. Okay, so no, well, you have to figure out how to do it. So yeah. for myself, I moved from a, a rather large home with a swimming pool in Scottsdale to I live in a, a mobile home trailer park in Phoenix now. You know, 
Uh, I went from a, a house that was $400,000 to a house that was $45,000. So there's the personal sacrifice that comes. If you're not willing to do that. Yeah, I was going to say you know, it's like more about if, if you're a person, If you're a person that has yeah. to brag about your, your zip code and how many square feet your house is, this isn't the right business for you. So you have to, you have to there's some sacrifice that's involved. Because if you're, if you, unless you want to, you know, obviously blow the doors off the nonprofit and raise a lot of money and take a lot of money, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in a ministry, which we are in, well, we have to be good stewards with the money that comes in. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and take food from a child so that I can live in an expensive big mansion. I'm not gonna do that. I just, I can't put my head on my pillow at night and sleep doing that. Now that's me. There's a lot of people that can, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is that. When you get to do this for the right reason, if it's a calling and you feel that you're called to be a good steward with the dollars that come in, then you change your lifestyle, everything about it. Then to the car you drive, to the jewelry you wear, to the house you live in and the zip code it's in and what you think you need from a paycheck. Because here's what happens. When you make a lot of money and you get to a certain point in time, you start putting that money in the bank and letting it sit there and store yeah, up, right? right? Yeah. Well, does that, help any, does that help anybody that you're trying to serve? No, it doesn't. It helps you, but... But look at, look at, there's people out there, look at like Rick Warren and Francis Chan, and they're reverse tithers, right? They keep 10 and give 90, but, you know, they're making millions and millions of dollars, right? But they still, they, they reverse the point process where they don't keep as much as you think they do. They give away a lot more. And you can look at certain people that are very, very wealthy that do the same thing. Look at Bill and Melinda Gates. They give a lot of money away, but they have a lot True. of money, right? Mm-hmm. And they can afford to give a lot of money away. There's a guy here locally, uh, Bob Parsons. He owns GoDaddy, and he owns PXG Golf, and he owns all these different things. Right. Well, guess what? He was at a fundraiser the other night, and I think he gave away about $5 bucks. Okay? But, you know. It probably didn't hurt him as much. It didn't hurt him at all. Yeah, still. But see, here's the thing that we can't, we got to make sure we understand how commerce works. And if you're fortunate enough and be blessed to make a lot of money, then it's then it's your opportunity to figure out what to do with that, right? I don't want. I don't. I'm not saying everybody has to live like I do, but but the fact is, is I enjoy that that level of of comfort, right? Mm-hmm. I don't need a lot of right. lavishness in my life at this point because I I see poverty up close and personal. And I'll be honest with you, if, if I go into a home, and when I call it a home, I'm talking about a. a um, a Winnebago with no wheels and no air conditioning, right? With three or four fans, and there's a family living in there, and they don't have, I mean, they don't have really anything. It's very difficult for me to go home and live in a lavish place and feel good about myself. Right. I just, I, I have a hard time doing it. Not, every, not And that's not for everybody. Some people can sleep like a baby. For me, it's just hard for me. So I know that my calling that I'm, that I'm led to do is I'm led to live a modest life, you know, um, live modestly, take a living wage, and I don't need a wage from the organization, but at the same time, uh, I, like to, I like to try and give back as much as possible if I can. And that's just, you know, where I'm at in life. I'm 60 years old, so it's time for me to, to I, you know, I, I realize that it's time give for me to Give something back, that. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, this might be our last question. Um, it's kind of our concept of the whole podcast. We ask our guests about their maybe biggest failure or let's put it that way biggest hardship they ever faced in life and how they came out of it came out of that how they uh, faced that and how they um, dealt with it Um, so do you think of any specific thing um, which was really a struggle for you but you like came out of that 
Yeah, I, I would say recently, uh, on July 19th, I turned 60 years old, it was my birthday, and my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer that day. Um, not the best birthday present to ever get. So what, what you do at that point in time is, here you are, two people, uh, running a ministry, serving, and then all of a sudden, uh, one of you, you know, your spouse, uh, gets diagnosed with a, with a, with a you know, an illness. And I think at that point in time, you know, if, if, that, you know, if you've ever seen that happen in your life where someone gets, you know, sick, um, nothing else matters. Your, your bank account doesn't matter, your job doesn't matter, you know, uh, what you're going to have for dinner doesn't matter, nothing else matters because you think that that person, you know, is, is obviously uh, sick enough where, you know, they may or may not, you know, live. Um, so, I mean, you know, coming from where I come from, it was, it's faith. For me, it was faith. It was faith to say, okay, if, if God has a plan uh, for us to continue to do what we're doing to help these children, then, you know, things will, things will work out. And How did that affect your business? It didn't. It, it, it didn't. Uh, you know, all through her treatments or not her radiation. Not even thought of, like... Not, not, never thought of, never thought of, of, really? of you know, never thought wow. of, uh, you know, getting out of it because... Um, we have an agreement that w whatever happens to either one of us, the other one's going to keep doing what we did. And right. uh, today, uh, what's today, March 27th, she's 100 days, 100 days cancer free. So, you know, from a faith, yeah, thank you. So from a faith perspective, um, we serve, you know, and when we serve faithfully, um, things are going to come into our lives that are going to look like they're game changers, you know, or game enders. And we have to, you know, we have to understand that, you know, we're only given what we can handle, and we have to, you know, continue to move forward. Um, and you know, again, it's it's a concept of in business. It's a concept of failing forward. Even though a failure, you know, happens, a right. failure should never move you backwards. You should always fail forward. It's a chance to so learn. it's it, it's a learning opportunity. Um, it's a it's a sharpening the saw opportunity. And you have to take that failure and you have to dissect it and understand it and then obviously, you know, move forward with it. And that's if you're, if you're making, you know, mistakes in business and they're always going to happen. But you always fail forward. So if you're going to, you know, you know if you're going to go into business and you've you got to anticipate that there's going to be speed bumps and stumbling blocks, but always keep moving forward even after a failure and, th and things work themselves out. They always do. All right. Thank that's all you. I got. I think it's a good point to wrap it up. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it, fellas. Please make sure to check Kitchen on the Street and just check out what amazing work Mr. Scarbinato and his family is doing. Also, if you haven't followed the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Also, follow us on Instagram. You find us under Star Stripe Stories. And tune in for next time. Thank you guys for listening. Good night. Good night. <laughs> good night in Germany. <laughs> <laughs>